Gracious affections are from a divine influence. Part 3 of Religious Affections It must be observed that a natural man may have religious apprehensions and affections which may be in many respects very new and surprising to him, and yet what he experiences be nothing like the exercises of a new nature. His affections may be very new, in a very new degree, with a great many new circumstances, a new cooperation of natural affections and a new composition of ideas. This may be from some extraordinary powerful influence of Satan and some great delusion. There is nothing, however, but nature extraordinarily acted, as if a poor man who had always dwelt in a cottage and had never looked beyond the obscure village where he was born should in a jest be taken to a magnificent city and prince's court and be there arrayed in princely robes and set in the throne with a crown royal on his head, peers and nobles bowing before him, and should be made to believe that he is now a glorious monarch. His ideas and the affections he would experience would in many respects be very new, and such as he had no imagination of before. Yet who would suppose that what was done to him was anything more than extraordinary raising and exciting natural principles, and newly exalting, varying, and compounding such sort of ideas as he had by nature? Who would infer that this was giving him a new sense? Upon the whole, I think it is clearly manifest that all truly gracious affections arise from special and peculiar influences of the spirit, working that sensible effect or sensation in the souls of the saints, which are entirely different from all that is possible a natural man should experience, different not only in degree and circumstances, but in its whole nature, so that a natural man not only cannot experience that which is individually the same, but cannot experience anything but what is exceedingly diverse and immensely below it in its kind, and that which the power of men or devils is not sufficient to produce, or anything of the same nature. I have insisted the more largely on this manner, because this view of the subject is evidently of great importance and use in order to discover the delusions of Satan, and many kinds of false religious affections by which multitudes are deluded, and probably have been in all ages of the Christian Church. Also, in order to settle and determine many articles of doctrine concerning the operations of the Spirit of God and the nature of true grace... Let us now therefore apply these things to the purpose of this discourse. From hence it appears that impressions which some have on their imagination, their imaginary ideas of God, or Christ, or heaven, or anything appertaining to religion, have nothing in them that is spiritual or of the nature of true grace. Though such things may attend what is spiritual and may be mixed with it, yet in themselves they are not any part of gracious experience. Here, for the sake of the lesson formed, I will explain what is intended by impressions on the imagination and imaginary ideas. The imagination is a power of the mind whereby it can have a conception or idea of external things or objects of the outward senses, when those things are not present, and therefore not perceived by the senses. It is called imagination from the word image. 
because thereby a person may have an image of some external thing in his mind when that thing is not present in reality nor anything like it. What we perceive by our five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and feeling, are external things. And when a person has an image of these things in his mind, but does not really see, hear, smell, taste, nor feel them, that is to have an imagination of them, and these ideas are imaginary ideas. When such ideas are strongly impressed upon the mind, and the image is very lively, almost as if one saw or heard them, and so on, that is called an impression on the imagination. Thus, colors and shapes are outward things, objects of the outward senses seen. Therefore, when any person has in his mind a lively idea of any shape, or color, or form of countenance, of light or darkness, such as he perceives by the sense of seeing, of any marks made on paper, suppose letters and words written in a book, that is to have an imagination, or an external and imaginary idea of such things, as we sometimes perceive by our bodily eyes. And when we have the ideas of sounds, voices, or words spoken, this is only to have ideas of outward things perceived by the external sense of hearing, and so that is also imagination. When these ideas are impressed with liveliness, almost as if they were really heard with the ears, this is to have an impression on the imagination. And so I might instance in the ideas of things appertaining to the other three senses of smelling, tasting, and feeling. Many who have had such things have ignorantly supposed them to be of the nature of spiritual discoveries. They have had lively ideas of some external shape and beautiful form of countenance, and this they call spiritually seeing Christ. Some have had impressed upon them ideas of a great outward light. And this they call a spiritual discovery of God's or Christ's glory. Some have had ideas of Christ hanging on the cross and his blood running from his wounds. And this they call a spiritual sight of Christ crucified in the way of salvation by his blood. Some have seen him with his arms open, ready to embrace them. And this they call a discovery of the sufficiency of Christ's grace and love. Some have had lively ideas of heaven and of Christ on a throne there, and shining ranks of saints and angels, and this they call seeing heaven open to them. Some from time to time have had a lively idea of a person of a beautiful countenance smiling upon them, and this they call a spiritual discovery of the love of Christ to their souls and tasting the love of Christ. And they look upon it is a sufficient evidence that those things are spiritual discoveries, and that they see them spiritually, because they say they do not see these things with their bodily eyes, but in their hearts, for they can see them with their eyes shut. And in like manner, the imaginations of some have been impressed with ideas of the sense of hearing. They have had ideas of words as if they were spoken to them, sometimes the words of Scripture and sometimes other words. They have had ideas of Christ speaking comfortable words to them. These things they have called having the inward call of Christ, hearing the voice of Christ spiritually in their hearts, having the witness of the Spirit, 
the inward testimony of the love of Christ, and so on. The common and less considerate sort of people are the more easily led into apprehensions that these are spiritual things, because spiritual things being invisible, we are forced to use figurative expressions in speaking of them, and to borrow names from sensible objects by which to signify them. Thus we call a clear apprehension of things spiritual by the name of light, and having an apprehension of things by the name of seeing such things. The conviction of the judgments and the persuasion of the will by the word of Christ and the gospel we signify by spiritually hearing the call of Christ. The scripture itself abounds with such like figurative expressions, persons hearing these often used and having pressed upon them the necessity of having their eyes opened, or having a discovery of spiritual things, seeing Christ in his glory, having the inward call and the like. They ignorantly look and wait for some external discoveries and imaginary views, and when they have them, they are confident that now their eyes are opened. Now Christ has discovered himself to them, and they are his children, and hence they are exceedingly affected and elevated with their deliverance, and many kinds of affections are at once set in a violent motion." But it is exceedingly apparent that such ideas have nothing in them which is spiritual and divine, in the sense wherein it has been demonstrated that all gracious experiences are spiritual and divine. These external ideas are in no wise entirely, and in their whole nature, diverse from what all men have by nature. So far from this, they are of the same sort which we have by the external senses among the inferior powers of human nature. They are merely ideas of external objects of the outward sensitive kind, the same sort of sensations of mind, differing not in degree but only in circumstances, that we have by those natural principles which are common to us with the beats. This is a low, miserable notion of spiritual sense to suppose that it is only a conceiving or imagining that sort of ideas which we have by our animal senses, which senses the beasts have in as great a perfection as we. Is this anything better than, as it were, a turning of Christ or the divine nature in the soul into mere animal? Is there anything wanting in the soul as it is by nature to render it capable of being the subject of all these external ideas without any new principles? A natural man is capable of having an idea, and a lively idea, of shapes and colors and sounds when they are absent, even as capable as a regenerate man is, so there is nothing supernatural in them. And it is known by abundant experience that it is not the advancing or perfecting of human nature which makes persons more capable of having such lively and strong imaginary ideas, but on the contrary, the weakness of body and mind makes persons abundantly more susceptible of such impressions. Flavel wrote in his preparations for sufferings, Conceits and whimsies abound most in men of weak reason. Children and such as are cracked in their understanding have most of them. Strength of reason banishes them, as the sun does mists and vapors. But now the more rational any gracious person is, by so much more is he fixed and settled and satisfied in the grounds of religion. Yea, there is the highest and purest reason in religion, and with this change is wrought upon men, 
It is carried on in a rational way, Isaiah 118, John 19, 9, As to a truly spiritual sensation, not only is the manner of its coming into the mind extraordinary, but the sensation itself is totally diverse from all that men have or can have in a state of nature as has been shown. But as to these external ideas... Though the way of their coming into the mind is sometimes unusual, yet the ideas in themselves are not the better for that. They are still of no different sort from what men have by their senses. They are of no higher kind, nor a whit better. For instance, the external idea a man has now of Christ hanging on the cross and shedding his blood is no better in itself than the external idea that the Jews, his enemies, had, who stood round his cross and saw this with their bodily eyes. The imaginary idea which men have now of an external brightness and glory of God is no better than the idea the wicked congregation in the wilderness had of the external glory of the Lord at Mount Sinai when they saw it with bodily eyes, or any better than the idea which millions of cursed reprobates will have of the external glory of Christ at the day of judgment who shall see and have a very lively idea of ten thousand times greater external glory of Christ than ever yet was conceived in any man's imagination. Thomas Shepard wrote in his parable of the ten virgins, If any man should see and behold Christ really immediately, this is not the saving knowledge of him. I know the saints do know Christ as if immediately present, they are not strangers by their distance. If others have seen them more immediately, I will not dispute it. But if they have seen the Lord Jesus as immediately as if here on earth, yet Capernaum saw him so, nay, some of them were disciples for a time and followed him, John 6, and yet the Lord was hid from their eyes. Nay, all the world shall see him in his glory, which shall amaze them. And yet this is far short of having a saving knowledge of him, which the Lord doth communicate to the elect. So that though you see the Lord so really, as that you become familiar with him, yet Luke 13.26, Lord, have we not eat and drink in thy presence? And so perish, in quote is the image of Christ which men conceive in their imaginations and its own nature of any superior kind the idea the papists conceive of Christ by the beautiful and affecting images of him which they see in their churches? Are the affections they have if built primarily on such imaginations any better than the affections raised in ignorant people by the sight of those images which oftentimes are very great, especially when these images, through the craft of the priests, are made to move, speak, weep, and the like? Thomas Shepard again. Satan is transformed into an angel of light, and hence we have heard that some have heard voices. Some have seen the very blood of Christ dropping on them, and his wounds in his side. Some have seen a great light shining in the chamber, some wonderfully affected with their dreams. Some in great distress have had inward witness, Thy sins are forgiven, and hence such liberty and joy that they are ready to leap up and down the chamber. O oh, adulterous generation, this is natural and usual with men. They would fain see Jesus and have him present to give them peace. 
and hence papists have his images. Woe to them that have no other manifested Christ but such in one. End quote. Parable of the Ten Virgins. Merely the way of persons receiving these imaginary ideas does not alter the nature of the ideas themselves that are received. Let them be received in what way they will, they are still but external ideas, or ideas of outward appearances, and so are not spiritual. Yea, if men should actually receive such external ideas by the immediate power of the Most High God upon their minds, they would not be spiritual. They should be no more than a common work of the Spirit of God, as is evident in fact in the instance of Balaam, who had impression on his mind by God himself. A clear and lively outward representation or idea of Jesus Christ is a star rising out of Jacob when he heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High and saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance. Numbers 24, 16, and 17. But Balaam had no spiritual discovery of Christ. The day star never spiritually rose in his heart, he being but a natural man. And as these external ideas have nothing divine or spiritual in their nature, and nothing but what natural men without any new principles are capable of, so there is nothing in their nature which requires that peculiar, inimitable, and unparalleled exercise of the glorious power of God in order to their production, which it has been shown there is in the production of true grace." There appears to be nothing in it, in their nature, above the power of the devil. It is certainly not above the power of Satan to suggest thoughts to men, because otherwise he cannot tempt them to sin. And if he can suggest any thoughts or ideas at all, doubtless imaginary ones, or ideas of things external are not above his power. John Flavel. Consider how difficult, yea, impossible it is to determine that such a voice, vision, or revelation is of God, and that Satan cannot feign or counterfeit it, seeing he hath left no certain marks by which he may distinguish one spirit from another. In quote, causes and cures of mental errors. These ideas may be raised only by impressions made on the body, by moving the animal spirits and impressing the brain. Abundant experience shows that alterations in the body will excite imaginary ideas in the mind, as in a high fever, melancholy, and so on. These external ideas are as much below the more intellectual exercises of the soul as the body is a less noble part of man than the soul. Again, there is not only nothing in the nature of these imaginations of outward appearances from whence we can infer that they are above the power of the devil, but it is certain also that the devil can excite and often has excited such ideas. They were external ideas which he excited in the dreams and visions of the false prophets of old who were under the influence of lying spirits. There is a remarkable passage of Mr. John Smith in his discourse on the shortness of Pharisaic righteousness of his select discourses, describing that sort of religion which is built on such a foundation as I am here speaking of. I cannot forbear transcribing the whole of it. Speaking of a sort of Christian, whose life is nothing but a strong energy of fancy, he says, quote, Lest a religion might too grossly discover itself to be nothing else but a piece of art, 
there may be sometimes such extraordinary emotions stirred up within them, which may prevent all their own thoughts, that they may seem to be a true operation of the divine life, when yet all this is nothing else but the energy of their own self-love, touched with some fleshly apprehensions of divine things, and excited by them. There are such things in our Christian religion, when a carnal and hallowed mind takes a chair, and gets the expounding of them, may seem very delicious to the fleshly appetites of men, some doctrines and notions of free grace and justification, the magnificent titles of sons of God and heirs of heaven, ever-flowing streams of joy and pleasures that blessed souls shall swim in to all eternity, a glorious paradise in the world to come, always springing up with what well-scented and fragrant beauties, a new Jerusalem paved with gold and bespangled with stars, comprehending in its vast circuit such numberless varieties that a busy curiosity may spend itself about it to all eternity. I doubt not but that sometimes the most fleshly and earthly men that fly in their ambition to the pomp of this world may be so ravished with the conceits of such things as these, that they may seem to be made partakers of the powers of the world to Come, I doubt not but that they might be much exalted with them as the souls of craved or distracted persons seems to be sometimes when their fancies play with those quick and nimble spirits which a distempered frame of body and unnatural heat in their heads beget within them. Thus may these blazing comets rise up above the moon and climb higher than the sun, which yet, because they have no solid consistence of their own, and are of a base and earthly alloy, will soon vanish and fall down again, being only borne up by external force. They may seem to themselves to have attained higher than those noble Christians that are gently moved by the natural force of true goodness. They seem to be more full of God than those that are really informed and actuated by the Divine Spirit, and do move on steadily and constantly in the way towards heaven, as the seed that was sown in stony ground grew up and lengthened out its blade faster than that which was sown in the good and fruitful soil, and as emotions of our sense and fancy and passions, while our souls are in this mortal condition, sunk down deeply into the body, are many times more vigorous and make stronger impressions upon us than those of the higher powers of the soul which are more subtle and remote from these mixed animal perceptions, that devotion which there is seated may seem to have more energy and life in it than that which gently and with a more delicate kind of touch spreads itself upon the understanding and from thence mildly derives itself through our wills and affections. But however the former may be more boisterous for a time, that this is of a more consistent, spermatical, and thriving nature, but that, for that proceeding indeed from nothing but a sensual and fleshly apprehension of God and true happiness is but a flitting and fading nature, and as the sensible powers and faculties grow more languid, or the sun of divine light shines more brightly upon us, these earthly devotions, like our culinary fires, will abate their heat and fervor. But a true celestial warmth will never be extinguished because it is of an immortal nature, and being once seated vitally in the souls of men, it will regulate and order all the motions of it in a due manner. As a natural heat radicated in the hearts of living creatures hath the dominion and economy of the whole body under it. True religion is no piece of artifice. 
It is no boiling up of our imaginative powers, nor the glowing heats of passion, though these are too often mistaken for it. When on our jugglings in religion we cast a mist before our own eyes. But it is a new nature, informing the souls of men. It is a godlike frame of spirit, discovering itself most of all in serene and clear minds, in deep humility, meekness, self-denial, universal love to God and all true goodness, without partiality and without hypocrisy, whereby we are taught to know God, and knowing Him, to love Him, and conform ourselves as much as may be to all that perfection which shines in Him." If Satan or any created being has power to impress a mind with outward representations, then no particular sort of outward representations can be any evidence of a divine power. Is almighty power any more requisite to represent any shape of man to the imagination than the shape of anything else? Is there any higher kind of power necessary to form in the brain one bodily shape or color than another? Does it need a power any more glorious to represent the form of the body of man than the form of a chip or block, though it be of a very beautiful human body, with a sweet smile in its countenance, or arms open, or blood running from hands, feet, and side? May not that sort of power which can represent blackness or darkness to the imagination also represent white and shining brightness? May not the power and skill which can well and exactly paint a straw or a stick on a piece of paper or canvas only perhaps further improve be sufficient to paint the body of a man with great beauty in royal majesty or a magnificent city paved with gold full of brightness and a glorious throne so it is no more than the same sort of power that is requisite to paint one as the other of these on the brain the same sort of power that can put ink upon paper can put on leaf gold so that it is evident to a demonstration, if we suppose it to be in the devil's power to make any sort of external representation at all on the fancy, and ever anyone question it who believed there was a devil, that had any agency with mankind, that a created power may extend to all kinds of external appearances and ideas in the mind. From hence it again clearly appears that no such things having anything in them that is spiritual, supernatural, and divine, in the sense in which it has been proved that all truly gracious experiences have. And though external ideas through man's make and frame ordinarily in some degree attend spiritual experiences, yet these ideas are no part of their spiritual experience any more than the motion of the blood and beating of the pulse. And though undoubtedly, through men's infirmity in the present state, and especially through the weak constitution of some persons, gracious affections which are very strong to excite lively ideas in the imagination, it is also undoubted that when affections are founded on imaginations, which is often the case, those affections are merely natural and common because they are built on a foundation that is not spiritual, and so are entirely different from gracious affections, which, as has been proved, do evermore arise from those operations that are spiritual and divine. 
These imaginations oftentimes raise the carnal affections to men to an exceeding great height. And no wonder when the subjects of them have an ignorant but undoubting persuasion that they are divine manifestations which the great Jehovah immediately makes to their souls, therein giving them testimonies in an extraordinary manner of his high and peculiar favor. Again, it is evident from what has been observed and proved of the manner in which gracious operations and effects in the heart are spiritual, supernatural, and divine, that the immediate suggesting of the words of Scripture to the mind has nothing in it which is spiritual. I have had occasion to say something of this already, and what has been said may be sufficient to evince it. But if the reader bears in mind what has been said concerning the nature of spiritual influences and effects, it will be more abundantly manifest that this is no spiritual effect. For I suppose there is no person of common understanding who will say that the bringing of any words to the mind is an effect of that nature, that it requires any new divine sense in the soul, or that the bringing of sounds or letters to the mind is an effect of so high, holy, and excellent a nature that it is impossible any created power should be the cause of it. As a suggesting of scripture words to the mind is only exciting in the mind ideas of certain sounds or letters, so it is only one way of exciting ideas in the imagination. For sounds and letters are external things, the objects of the external senses of seeing and hearing. Therefore, by what has been already said concerning these external ideas, it is evident they are nothing spiritual. And if at any time the Spirit of God suggests these letters or sounds to the mind, this is a common and not any special or gracious influence of that Spirit. And therefore it follows from what has already been proved, that those affections which have this effect for their foundation are no spiritual or gracious affections. But let it be remembered that what I maintain is briefly this. When the immediate and extraordinary manner of words of Scripture coming to the mind is that which excites the affections, and is properly the foundation of them, then these affections are not spiritual. Indeed, persons may have gracious affections going with scriptures which come to their minds, and the Spirit of God may make use of those scriptures to excite them. When it is a spiritual sense or taste they have of the divine things contained in those scriptures which excites their affections, and not the extraordinary and sudden manner of their entrance. They are affected with the instruction they receive from the words, and the view of the glory of things of God or Christ which they contain, and not because the words came suddenly, as though God did as it were immediately speak to them. Persons oftentimes are exceedingly affected on this foundation. The words of some great promises of Scripture come suddenly to their minds, as though that moment they proceeded out of the mouth of God is spoken to them. Thus they take it as a voice from God, immediately revealing to them their happy circumstances, and promising them such and such great things. And this it is that affects and elevates them. There is no new or spiritual understanding of the divine things contained in the scripture, or new spiritual sense of the glory of things taught in that part of the Bible going before their affection, and as a foundation of it. All the new understanding they have or think they have as a foundation of their affection is this, that the words are spoken to them because they come so suddenly in so extraordinary a manner. 
And so this affection is built wholly on the sand because it is built on a conclusion for which they have no foundation. And if it was true that God brought the words to their minds and they certainly knew it, even that would not be spiritual knowledge. It may be without any spiritual sense. Balaam might know that the words which God suggested to him were indeed suggested to him by God and yet have no spiritual knowledge. So that affections built on that notion, that texts of Scripture are sent immediately from God, are built on no spiritual foundation, and are vain and delusive. Persons who have their affections thus raised, if they should be asked whether they have any new sense of the excellency of the things contained in those Scriptures, would probably say yes, without hesitation. But it is true no otherwise, and because they have taken up that notion that the words are spoken immediately to them. That it is which makes them appear sweet, excellent, and wonderful. As for instance, supposing these words were brought suddenly to their minds, Fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Having confidently taken up a notion that the words were immediately spoken from heaven to them, as an immediate revelation that God was their father and had given the kingdom to them, they are greatly affected by it, and the words seem sweet to them. Oh, say they, what excellent things are contained in those words. But the reason why the promise seems excellent to them is only because they think it is made to them immediately. All the sense they have of any glory in them is only from self-love and from their own imagined interest in the words. They had not any sense of the holy nature of the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual glory of that God who gives it, and of his excellent grace to sinful men in giving them this kingdom of his own good pleasure, preceding their imagined interest in these things and their being affected by them. On the contrary, they first imagine they are interested in these things, then are highly affected with that consideration, and then can own these things to be excellent. So that the sudden and extraordinary way of the scriptures coming to their mind is plainly the foundation of the whole, which is a clear evidence of the wretched delusion they are under. The first comfort of many persons in what they call their conversion is after this manner. After awakening and terrors, some comfortable promise comes suddenly and wonderfully to their minds, and the manner of its coming makes them conclude it comes from God to them. This is the very foundation of their faith, hope, and comfort. From hence they take their first encouragement to trust in God and in Christ, because they think that God, by some scripture so brought, has now already revealed to them that he loves them, and has already promised them eternal life. But this is very absurd. For every one of common knowledge of religious principles knows that it is God's manner to reveal his love to men and their interest in the promises after they have believed, and not before. They must first believe before they have any personal and possessive interest in the promises to be revealed. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth and not of lies. He does not bring Scripture to men's minds in order to reveal to them that they have a personal and possessive interest in God's promises when they have none, having not yet believed. 
For this would be the case of God bringing texts of Scripture to men's minds in order to show them that their sins were forgiven, or that it was God's pleasure to give them the kingdom, or anything of that nature went before and was a foundation of their first faith. No promise of the covenant of grace belongs possessively to any man until he has first believed in Christ. For it is by faith alone that we become thus interested in Christ and the promises of the new covenant made in him. Therefore, whatever spirit applies the promises of that covenant to a person who has not first believed, is being already his, in the sense already mentioned, must be a lying spirit. And that faith, which is first built on such an application of promises, is built upon a lie. God's manner is not to bring comfortable texts of Scripture to give men assurance of His peculiar love, and that they shall be happy before they have had a faith of dependence. Mr. Stoddard, in his Guide to Christ, says that sometimes men, after they have been in trouble a while, have some promises come to them with a great deal of refreshing, and they hope God has accepted them, and says that, in this case, a minister may tell them that God never gives a faith of assurance before he gives a faith of dependence, for he never manifests his love until men are in a state of favor and reconciliation, which is by faith of dependence. When men of comfortable scriptures come to them, they are apt to take them as tokens of God's love, but men must be brought into Christ by accepting the offer of the gospel before they are fit for such manifestations. God's method is first to make the soul accept of the offers of grace, and then to manifest his good estate unto him. And on page 76, he writes, Speaking of them that seem to be brought to lie at God's foot, and give an account of their closing with Christ, and that God has revealed Christ to them, and drawn their hearts to Him, and that they do accept of Christ, he says, In this case it is best to examine whether by that light that was given him he saw Christ and salvation offered to him, or whether he saw that God loved him or pardoned him, for the offer of grace and our acceptance goes before pardon, and therefore much more before the knowledge of it. Thomas Shepard, in his Parable of the Ten Virgins, writes, Grace and the love of Christ, the fairest colors under the sun, may be pretended. But if you shall receive under this appearance that God witnesseth his love, first by an absolute promise, take heed there. For under this appearance you may as well bring in immediate revelations, and from thence come to forsake the scriptures. He also writes, quote, Is Christ yours? Yes, I see it. How? By any word or promise? No, this is a delusion. In page 136, speaking of them that have no solid ground of peace, he reckons, quote, Those that content themselves with a revelation of the Lord's love, without the sight of any work, or not looking to it, and says presently after, quote, The testimony of the Spirit does not make a man more a Christian, but only evidences it. As it is the nature of a witness, not to make a thing to be true, but to clear and evidence it. End quote. In page 140, speaking to them that say they have the witness of the Spirit, that makes a difference between them and hypocrites, he says, quote, 
The witness of the Spirit makes not the first difference. For first a man is a believer, and in Christ and justified, called and sanctified, before the Spirit does witness it. Else the Spirit should witness to an untruth and lie. End quote. And if the scripture which comes to a person's mind be not so properly a promise as an invitation, yet if he makes the sudden or unusual manner of its coming to his mind the ground on which he believes that he is invited, it is not true faith, because it is built on that which is not the true ground of faith. True faith is built on no precarious foundation, but a determination that the words of such a particular text were by the immediate power of God suggested to the mind at such a time as though then spoken and directed by God to him, because they came after such a manner, is wholly an uncertain and precarious determination, and therefore is a false and sandy foundation for faith, and accordingly the faith which is built upon it is also false. The only certain foundation which any person has to believe that he is invited to partake of the blessings of the gospel is that the word of God declares that persons so qualified as he is are invited, and God who declares it is true and cannot lie. If a sinner be once convinced of the veracity of God, and that the scriptures are his word, he will need no more to convince and satisfy him that he is invited. For the scriptures are full of invitations to sinners, to the chief of sinners, to come and partake of the benefits of the gospel. He will not want of God anything new. What he has already spoken will be enough with him. As the first comfort of many persons and their affections at the time of their supposed conversion are built on such grounds as these mentioned, so are their joys, hopes, and other affections afterwards. They have often particular words of scriptures, sweet declarations and promises suggested to them, which, by reason of the manner of their coming, they think are immediately sent from God to them at that time. This they look upon as their warrant, the main ground of appropriating them to themselves, of their comfort and the confidence they receive from them. Thus they imagine a kind of conversation is carried on between God and them, and that God from time to time, as it were, immediately speaks to them and satisfies their doubts, testifies his love to them, promises them supports and supplies, and reveals to them clearly their interest in eternal blessings. And thus they are often elevated and have a sudden and tumultuous kind of joy mingled with strong confidence and a high opinion of themselves, when indeed the main ground of these joys and this confidence is not anything contained in or taught by these scriptures, but the manner of their coming to them, which is a certain evidence of their delusion. There is no particular promise in the word of God made to the saint, or spoken to him, otherwise in all the promises of the covenant of grace are his and are spoken to him. Thomas Shepard, in his Sound Believer, page 159, of the late impression at Boston, says, quote, Embrace in thy bosom not only some few promises, but all. And then he asks a question, When may a Christian take a promise without presumption is spoken to him? He answers, The rule is very sweet but certain. When he takes all the scripture and embraces it as spoken unto him, he may then take any particular promise boldly. 
My meaning is, when a Christian takes hold and wrestles with God for the accomplishment of all the promises of the New Testament, when he sets all the commands before him as a compass and guide to walk after, when he applies all the threatenings to drive him nearer unto Christ the end of them, this no hypocrite can do, this a saint shall do, and by this they may know when the Lord speaks in particular unto them." But here some may be ready to say, What? Is there no such thing as any particular spiritual application of the promises of Scripture by the Spirit of God? I answer, There is doubtless such a thing as a spiritual and saving application of the invitations and promises of Scripture to the souls of men. But it is also certain that the nature of it is wholly misunderstood by many persons to the great ensnaring of their own souls. Hereby Satan acquires a vast advantage against them, against the interest of religion and the church of God. The spiritual application of a scripture promise does not consist in its being immediately suggested to the thoughts of some extrinsic agent, in being born into the mind with a strong apprehension that it is particularly spoken and directed to them at that time. There is nothing of the hand of God evidenced in this effect, as events have proved in many notorious instances. It is a mean notion of a spiritual application of Scripture. There is nothing in the nature of it all beyond the power of the devil. For is nothing in the nature of this effect implying any vital communication of God. A truly spiritual application of the Word of God is of a vastly higher nature, as much above the devil's power as it is for him to apply the Word of God to a dead corpse, so as to raise it to life or to a stone to turn it into an angel. A spiritual application of the word of God consists in applying it to the heart, in spiritual enlightening, sanctifying influences. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.